Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about one of the most famous figures in the history of music. Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, a composer whose influence on Western music can't really be understated. He was just that that important a bloke, really. Uh, and everyone's heard of him, of course. Everyone's heard of this fella, and with good reason. He was one of the most gifted and prolific composers in history. Uh, he wrote well over 600 works, 600 pieces of music, uh, despite only living to his mid-30s. So he was just crapping music out all over the place. Um, in, in his earlier life, he started as a, as a child prodigy. He was composing and performing music at an age where, you know, you and I were, we were still learning how to tie our shoelaces and we're bloody eating our boogs as a snack. But uh, even at this young age, he travelled extensively throughout Europe. Uh, I mean, throughout the course of his entire life, really, he, he, he travelled a fair bit, um, entertaining the nobility and the royalty everywhere from, you know, France and Britain to I- Italy and Austria. And he met a bunch of very famous historical figures during his travels and, and, and built on his prodigal skill uh, as a child, you know, when he was a child, a youngster, to become a famous, a talented, and again, just ridiculously prolific composer. And I mean, you know, whether you know it or not, you definitely will have heard Mozart's work before. It is just that famous. It's just everywhere. You know, every time there's a, a film that has a fancy garden party scene or something like that, they'll be playing one of his string quartets in the background, I guarantee it. Unfortunately for Mozart, though, real financial success eluded him for much of his lifetime, uh, even as he spent, you know, the earlier stages of his life traveling extensively to seek employment at a noble uh, court somewhere in Europe. But even without uh, a huge amount of financial success, certainly he enjoyed uh, fame and, and a decent amount of fortune, though. He was very well known. The music he wrote was performed and celebrated throughout Europe, even, you know, during his lifetime, which isn't always the case with many gifted artists. And... Uh, because his story is such a long one, um, even though he didn't make it out of his fourth decade, it, he, he did live a, a very interesting and, and, and full life. So we're gonna, what we're going to do because of that, we're going to split this story in across uh, two episodes. Uh, today, we're going to talk about his childhood, his young adulthood, the travels that he went on, his attempts to find uh, gainful employment, the works that he created during the earlier stages of his life. Uh, and then we'll be back next week to talk about his time in Vienna. Uh, and uh, some of the associations he had there with other famous composers like Joseph Haydn. And, uh, and then also, also, obviously, of course, next week we'll have to talk about his, uh, his, his untimely death at the age of 35. So uh, throughout these episodes, I'll also be playing some of the music that he wrote. Uh, so keep an ear out. See if you recognize any of it. You probably will recognize some. There's a good chance you will. I mean, it's just that famous, as I say. But here we go. Let's get underway with the story of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, one of the most famous composers in the history, of, if not the most famous classical composer in history. Off we go. Here we go. So going all the way back here, going all the way back to 1756, to the 27th of January specifically, when a son was born to Leopold Mozart and his wife Anna Maria in Salzburg, uh, which was uh, part of the Holy Roman Empire at this point, today obviously part of modern-day Austria. Now, this young son, he was named, you ready for this? Johannes Christostomus Wolfgangus Theophilius Mozart as his, at his baptism, uh, which is a bit of a bloody mouthful there, but uh, he became known to history, of course, as Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, although that version of his name, particularly the Amadeus part, was only very rarely used in his lifetime. He called himself Wolfgang Amadei 
Mozart with a little sort of uh, French acute thing on the last E of Amadeus. He, he dropped the us from the Amadeus, but we know him as Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, W.A. Mozart. Anyway, Mozart's dad, Leopold, right? He was an established music teacher. He was, uh, he was already teaching Mozart's older sister, Maria Anna, who was nicknamed Nanerl. Uh, how to play the keyboard when Mozart was very young. Maria Anna or Nanuel was about uh, four, five years older than Mozart. And uh, young Mozart began to take an interest in the music that his dad and sister were making. And by the age of three, he was already starting to fiddle around with the clavier, working out little, little chords and the like. And by the age of five, if you'll believe it, he was already composing pieces of music. I mean... Uh, Composing at this point, when you're five years old, it's an interesting verb to use for someone who is such a tiny little child. But, I mean, that's what he was doing. He would make up these tunes, he'd make up little little pieces of music, and his dad would write them down. Now, we're still arguing today over whether he, whether he was five, or maybe he might have even been four when he started composing. But, I mean, whatever the case, you know, we're arguing about whether he was four or five, not whether he was, you know... 14 or 15 or 40 or 50 whether he was four or five the difference is largely academic he's a tiny little kid and he's and he's already writing music and we still have these pieces today they were written down they survived to the present here is the first piece of music that mozart ever wrote when he was five years old Now, this piece of music has the very catchy title of Andante in C, K1A. Now, you know, they didn't give music, they didn't give pieces of music the same sort of names. You know, we, we didn't have Wonderwall and, and Africa as, as the, the, the names of, uh, of, uh, of tunes back then. They were, largely speaking, named after how quickly they were played and what key they were in, so Andante in C. But the special thing about Mozart's work in particular, you'll often see, or you usually, I mean, almost always, you'll see a piece of music written by Mozart, the name of them accompanied by the letter K and then some numbers. Now, the K stands for the Köchel catalogue, right? Uh, Because uh, this was made by a bloke who was named, well, his name was Köchel, obviously. And he, uh, well, he catalogued Mozart's works. That's why it's called the Köchel catalogue. I mean, it makes a lot of sense there. Uh, he catalogued Mozart's works largely chronologically. Uh, so K467, uh, for example, was catalogued as the 476th piece that Mozart wrote. Now, the catalogue has been revised. It's been updated over the years. But it is still the method that's used, broadly speaking, to organise Mozart, Mozart's enormous oeuvre of, comp- uh, of compositions. And a note for all the music nerds that are listening, you probably already have realised that I'm going to use the sixth edition in today's episode, given that we started with the Andante and C rather than Minuet and G. Obviously, we're using 1A there. Whatever. Sixth edition. I'm not, take, I'm not taking questions at this time. We're going to use six editions. It's going to be much easier. Anyway, recognising the talent that both his children, both Wolfgang and Nanel, had for music, particularly, I mean, particularly Wolfgang, really, Leopold devoted a huge amount of time into instructing them. I mean, he was a music teacher. He spent a lot of time teaching his kids, you know, all these, all the various skills that he could pass on about music. He also taught them other things, reading, writing, maths, history, languages, all sorts. But much of their education as young children was focused on music and with good reason. Both Nanel and Mozart were child prodigies when it came to learning and performing music. There's no doubt about that. And Mozart particularly was always hungry for more. He would, he, he was insatiable, his appetite for music. If he wasn't practicing, learning, if he wasn't composing, he would pick up new in- instruments and learn them. You know, he, he, he taught himself the violin effectively and, and he's, he took instruction from his dad on the keyboard instruments like the, like the harpsichord later on the piano, of course. Now, Leopold was a demanding teacher. 
He was determined to see that his children become as successful as possible. But to his credit, once he realised that Mozart and Nenel had these musical talents that would outstrip his own, he actually gave up composing altogether to focus on teaching them instead. So this bloke, he kind of shelved his career as a, as a middling musician, you know, and middling composer to instead make sure that his children had the best opportunity possible to, you know, become... I mean, legendary musicians, and certainly one of them did. Uh, I mean, look, there was a level of self-interest in this. Leopold Mozart's a really fascinating figure because one of the reasons that he taught his kids, obviously, was to give them the best opportunity to succeed possible, but also because he he saw a fortune in them as well. You know, he saw this, the talent that they had would bring in a lot of money, and it was an opportunity for him to secure his finan- uh, his uh, his family's finances. So... A very interesting fellow. We're going to talk about talk about him more throughout both this and next week's episodes. But uh, suffice to say, at this point, gives up his career to focus on teaching his kids. And as I say, he didn't want the world to miss out on the prodigious talent of his children, and he didn't he didn't want to miss out on the enormous fortune that would come with showing them off. And so, as a result of this, Leopold took his family on tour in 1762. Uh, Mozart is just six years old, right? Uh, his sister is 11. But already they are off to go. They're going to they're get on the road. They're going to go on a maze. The rich and powerful fa- families around Europe. Um, at this point in European history, it's probably worth noting, particularly in the Holy Roman Empire, um, there's a bit of a political shift that's, that's, that's taking place. Obviously, this will crystallise towards the end of the century with political upheaval in the form of things like the French Revolution, Napoleonic Wars, whatever else. But right now, the Holy Roman Empire is becoming more fractured than ever. Various leaders, there's nobles, royals, aristocrats in general, whatever, they're all vying to impress and outdo each other in various ways. And, you know, unusually, in terms of from a, from a historical standpoint, not just on the battlefield. They're not just fighting wars over supremacy. An aristocratic court was expected to have a, a robust cultural component as well. You know, wealthy aristocrats became the patrons of artists and musicians as well, so as to attract other illustrious visitors to their court and also impress anyone who came uh, who came to visit you know from from other noble families or other realms and leopold very much had this at the forefront of his mind as he packed up his young family and took them on the road because he wanted to take you know his gifted children and perform in front of all these aristocrats hopefully make connections and earn himself some spondula maybe even secure a position at a court uh, as a uh, you know, as, as a more as a more permanent thing rather than a rather than a travelling musician, he wanted to actually set himself up or his children up as court musicians. So they head off from Salzburg and they head to Vienna first. And Mozart and his sister there, they played in front of the, some of the most powerful people in Europe, including Empress Maria Theresa herself, and interestingly, the future Queen Marie Antoinette of France. She was the same age as Mozart, uh, just a little kid. There are some stories about. They're meeting and having, you know, an adorably childish interaction. Apparently, at one point, Marie Antoinette fell over and Mozart helped her up and kissed her hand and said he would marry her. I don't know if it's true. It's a nice story. It probably didn't happen. But the Mozarts cleaned up in Vienna. Uh, they were very, very bloody busy. As news of these amazing kids spread, they were in high demand amongst the Vienna, uh, Viennese nobility. And they performed multiple times a day for various audiences. But after a, and, and, and so as a result, right, after a single week of doing this, a single week of going around Vienna and, uh, and, and you know, these kids putting on these performances, the family earned more than two 
years salary based on what Leopold had been earning uh, previously in one week they earned two years of his former salary so they are off to the races money is flowing in a bloody lucrative gig it is to say the least the Mozart kids they're an absolute sensation and people couldn't wait to see them and so as a result of this Leopold planned a grand European tour that would take the family across all the cultural capitals of the continent so as to get his kids and their talent as much exposure as possible now, I'll give you an idea of what these performances look like. During these performances, little Mozart, he'd come out dressed in a wig, wearing a little little sword, so cute, all dressed up like a fancy gentleman, Nanel too, in rich clothing. They'd come out, he and his sister would play music that should have just been, I mean, well beyond the ability of any kid anywhere, right? Impressive to the point that, you know, adults wouldn't be able to play it. And they'd also perform tricks, like playing pieces with their hands underneath the cloth that covered the keyboard so they couldn't see the uh, the keys that they were they were they were hitting. Would have been an incredible thing to see. I mean, imagine these tiny little kids, you know, coming out, giving virtuosic performances in front of people. And, and, you know, even at the time here, people knew that they were witnessing a very rare and a very special talent. So Leopold and the rest of the Mozarts, they hit the road and uh, and they're off through the continent. They travelled first to Munich and then through modern-day Germany to Frankfurt and Cologne before heading into the Austrian Netherlands, today's Belgium and Luxembourg. And during this leg of the trip, and, and, and in fairness for the rest of it, they performed in front of some very famous and important people, people that you will have heard of. Uh, for example, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe in Frankfurt. They played for, you know, this bloke who, he was only 14 at the time, but he would go on to effectively be, you know, roughly speaking, the German-speaking world's Shakespeare. They played in front of Princess Anna Amalia of Prussia, who was the sister of Frederick the Great in Arkham, episode one, get across it. They then, from uh, the German-speaking part of Europe, they headed into France. And in France, they played for the French royal family at Versailles. And uh, it was while he was in Paris that Mozart's compositions first started to actually be published. You know, they'd been written down, they'd been notated by his dad or whatever else, but now they were made publicly available. This kid is eight years old. And he's already a published composer. When I was eight, I was having trouble, buddy, putting Lego sets together, reading the instruction books. And this bloke is writing music that is being published. Unbelievable. In 1764, they left Paris. They traveled to London. And there they played for King George III. This is the very same King George III that listeners from the United States will recognize as the villain from, you know, the ridiculous jingoistic tales of the uh, American Revolutionary War. And they actually stayed in London for quite some time. Over a year, the Mozart stayed in London. They hadn't planned to visit London, but once they got there, they uh, they stuck around for quite a while. And the reason for this was some of the connections that they made. During this stay in, in London, young Mozart met Johann Christian Bach, son of the famous uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, another legendary composer. Of course, you you will have uh, you'll, you you'll know uh, some of his works: Air and a G String, Brandenburg Concertos, that sort of thing. Now, J. C. Bach, the the son of of J. S. Bach. He began to tutor Mozart in composition, and musical historians consider this to be a pivotal part of Mozart's musical development. In fact, in London, right, under the tutelage of Bach and, you know, learning so much about composition and musicianship and whatever else, it was in London that Mozart composed his first ever symphony, which his dad once again transcribed for him. And again, I will remind you, he is eight years old. He is eight years old and he's already written a symphony. I mean, talk talk about a bloody overachiever. Unbelievable. Anyway, after this time that they spent in London, which again was very important for Mozart's musical development in any sort of 
you know, scientific evaluation of, of Mozart's musicianship, you, you, you tie a lot to it back to this interaction, this tutelage that he had uh, under, under J.C. Bach there. Very important time for the young boy. But they left London in mid-1765 uh, and headed back onto the continent into the Netherlands. Uh, and, of course, they gave more performances as they travelled for various families, whatever else, and then headed back to Paris before heading through Switzerland and uh, then finally back down to Salzburg, arriving in late 1766 when Mozart was 10. And all the while, right, since leaving London, Mozart continued to compose piece after piece. He had, he had over 30 compositions already under his belt. And, you know, I guess we're sitting here talking about an eight-year-old writing symphonies and whatever else, and you sort of think, okay, well, I mean, how, could they, how, how good could they be possibly? Well, just to give you a sense of the music that he was writing at the age of 10 or 11, right, here is his symphony in G known as the Alta Lambach, K45A. This was written by someone who, in the course of regular schooling, would be learning at this point, you know, how fractions work. So this bloke is a... A fair way ahead of the curve, I would have thought. What's interesting about this tour, however, what's really interesting about this tour, something I alluded to earlier, earlier heading into this episode, it wasn't as successful as Leopold hoped. As much as, you know, the description of it that I've just given you, the way that we've talked about it, it might make you think otherwise, it actually didn't meet the objectives that Leopold had. I mean, Mozart's name was now very, very well known. He had connections across Europe. His musical genius was famous from Salzburg to London. And in addition... He developed enormously as a composer, as a musician, thanks to his, his exposure to some of the greatest musical minds of the time, his tutelage at the hand of, uh, of those like J.C. Bach. On those fronts, it's difficult to argue that the tour was, as a, was you know, anything other than a success, and certainly when you look at it through that lens, it was. But on another, it wasn't particularly successful at all because it hardly made them any money. That, I mean, they were reasonably well paid wherever they went. You know, They were paid handsomely for their concerts by the wealthy aristocrats they played for. The money just didn't last. Traveling was very expensive. Leopold wasn't able to actually put aside hardly any of the money that they earned while they were away. Um, they were expected, you know, as as royal and noble guests a lot of the time, you know, guests of, of royalty and no, nobility, they were expected to live a reasonably rich lifestyle, dress themselves in in fancy clothes, eat well, all of this sort of thing. And, you know, their clothes, their accommodation, food and all the, and, and the travel expenses, uh, they added up. And, you know, both then and now, London, for example, was not and is not a cheap city to live in. And so when after staying there for a year, for example, that, that really did run the coffers a little dry. Once they got back to Salzburg, they had to move back into their little old apartment. The, their financial position really had not improved all that much at all. And worse than this, another area where the tour was, was had quite some really negative, infl- negative uh, impacts was that it had really knocked about the family from, family from a health perspective. Leopold got very sick in London. Both kids fell ill in the Netherlands. And in fact, Nano was so unwell with typhoid fever that a priest was brought in to give her the bloody last sacrament. They, sh- they thought she was going to die. Now, thankfully, she didn't. She did make a recovery and went on to live for many years. But this was how bad it, it got 
for this family. And unfortunately, the health issues didn't stop even after they got back to Salzburg. What's worse, Mozart, he contracted smallpox after they were they were back in, in Salzburg. And the scars that he suffered uh, as a kid from this disease, they actually remained with him for the rest of his life. But overall, you know, considering how bad things were with uh, with the health of various uh, of, of you know the various members of the family throughout the this the, the years of this tour it's very lucky that they all survived particularly given you know that the the time frame we're talking about we're talking about the the, the mid to late uh, 18th century you know health sciences aren't at their all-time high here by any means anyway once they're back in salzburg they hung out there for a while before mozart and his dad once again hit the road uh in 1769 now it was just the two of them this time. And you might ask, why not the whole family? Well, by now, Nana was actually 18. Uh, She was no longer a child, which meant that she was no longer a child prodigy. And because she was a woman, of course, uh, the standards of the time deemed it inappropriate for her to be a touring musician. So absolute nonsense, of course, but, you know, so it goes. As a result, it's just Mozart and his dad, Leopold, who pack their bags this time and head south into the Italian peninsula. Mozart at this point, of course, now is a young teenager. The Italian tour saw him and his dad visit Milan, Florence, Rome, Naples, Venice, plenty of other places as well. And Mozart, as he continued to give, you know, performances for for, for the, the wealthy elite, for these aristocrats here, there and everywhere, he continued also to develop as a musician and particularly as a composer. One of the reasons that, the, that Leopold wanted to take his son into Italy was to expose him, right, to Italian music. Italy was the home of church music. It was it, it's the cradle of opera, and Leopold hoped to get Mozart the training and the education that he needed to write this kind of music. You know, partly because he wanted his child to be a well-rounded and talented composer, and partly because there was a lot of bloody money in operas. There were a, there was a lot of money in uh, in commissions for operas in particular. And so I'm sure Leopold was uh, was trying to sniff out some of the uh, some of that good good opera money there. But as they travelled around Europe, they continued to make more contacts. Mozart was accepted into musical societies and clubs, and 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 he did engross himself in the culture of Italian music. But the one thing, once again, that they were seeking, and the one thing that eluded them, was a position for Mozart at a powerful or famous court. Once again. Mozart giving performances, he's wowing these audiences with his musical abilities, and he did manage to secure a few commissions for some operas, which resulted in some very bloody handsome payments, thank you very much, but he did not manage to find anywhere that was willing to employ him as a court musician, unfortunately. One very funny thing, though, did happen in Italy that I want to tell you about. Before, before we head back to, uh, back to you know, them leaving Italy back to Salzburg, I want to tell you about what happened when they got to Rome. In Rome, of course, like every tourist uh, does, they visited the Vatican and they visited in particular the Sistine Chapel. Classic thing to do as a tourist there, of course, not going to blame it for that. But in the Sistine Chapel at this point, right, there was a, uh, a choir that would perform a very famous work called Miserere, right, which had been written uh, by the composer Gregorio Allegri. It had been commissioned specifically by the Catholic Church for their exclusive use in the Sistine Chapel. Miserere had never been published. It wasn't available uh, publicly, right? The, the sheet music was just, it was not possible to get it. It was only taught to these uh, these singers in the, in the choir who would perform it at the Sistine Chapel. And there was no way to, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't take a, you couldn't wire yourself up like an FBI witness and take home a bootleg recording of it. That wasn't, that, that wasn't an option available to you at the time. So the only place in the world 
that you could hear this piece, Miseria by Allegri, was in the actual factual Sistine Chapel sung by these nine blokes who, were, who had been taught to sing it, right? Now, because it was a very complex piece of music with nine intertwining harm, uh, vocal harmonies, right? It wasn't the sort of music that you could just hum to yourself, go home, write down, and then put on a performance of yourself. Except that's exactly what Mozart did. He listened to one performance of it, went home, and wrote it out just like that from memory. This kid transcribed a vocal, a nine-part vocal harmony from memory after listening to it once, and then... Just because he thought he'd made a couple of mistakes, he went back a couple of days later to the Sistine Chapel, listened to it again, came home, corrected the minor mistakes that he's made, and now this piece of music that the Catholic Church had kept secret for over a century was finally in the hands of the public. He had finally unlocked this secret, and now everyone had access to Miseraire. Interestingly, here's what I find really funny about this story, though. Not, I mean, you know, quite aside from the fact this teenager has gone home and shazammed a piece of music he's listened to once, right? When the Pope, right, Pope Clement the Fourteenth, heard about this, I mean, you can imagine, right? Well, the Catholic Church, they don't take kindly this sort of behaviour. You can imagine the, the sin and the fire and the brimstone being chucked about. I mean, that's what you're guessing, right? Not at all. Pope Clement the Fourteenth, right, instead invited Mozart back to the Vatican and bloody knighted him by way of congratulations. He was that impressed by this young boy's, you know, aptitude with music, by his, his, the skill that he had in, in, again, effectively shazamming this song, ripping off this, this, uh, this piece of music, that he was knighted. He was given a, a, a papal knighthood. So quite an incredible turn of events there for Mozart. Anyway, between 1769 and 1773, Mozart, Leopold, they cut about Italy. They returned to Salzburg every now and again. But just like the earlier Grand Tour, you know, they didn't have a lot of success in trying to in, in, in nailing down a, a secure employment, a position of employment for, for young Mozart. There, there were positives, sure. I mean, you know, once again, he was exposed to some of the greatest musical talents on earth, all of whom he would obviously soon eclipse, of course. And many of them helped him on his way to greatness. Um, and he also did make a fair whack of cash with the various commissions that he got, particularly for the operas that I wrote, as I said, did very well out of them. And on top of all of this, he kept composing piece after piece after piece throughout this entire you know, throughout this entire period. All these years, he's still writing music. And by the time he's back in Salzburg in 1773, he has written around 150 pieces of music. So his catalogue is already ridiculously, ridiculously large. However, he did fail to gain a position at any of the courts that visited. And what's worst, what's worse, he had been snubbed by some nobles when they attempted to visit. And the reason for this is not going to surprise you. Leopold was getting a bit of a bad reputation. Some aristocrats described him as a beggar, in fact, pawning the talents of his children as he took them from place to place. Essentially, it was just way too obvious that Leopold was trying to get a lucrative position at court through his son's talent. And because he was so keen, it rubbed people the wrong way. Leopold essentially was that guy who is far too keen for you to watch his favourite anime. He lends you the DVD and everything. Every time you see him, he keeps nagging you, asking you if you've watched it. And some nobles, they could sniff out this desperation. They could sniff out the, the clout chasing, effectively, that Leopold Mozart was doing here. Sniffing out a mile away. And, and you know, while the Mozarts didn't necessarily go empty-handed by any means, they, they did go home rather than, you know, take up an appointment at an Italian court. And the reason that they 
didn't get to all the courts that they perhaps hoped to is that Leopold at this stage had something of a bad reputation, someone who was on the hunt for a position that, you know, maybe people weren't uh, weren't super willing to grant him. Anyway, after returning from Italy to Salzburg one final time in 1773, Mozart, who is now 17 years of age, he did finally get a position, but it wasn't the one that he wanted. He was given a position at the at the court of the Archbishop of Salzburg. Um, I mean, this was someone who, you know, his dad was was closely acquainted with. And as a result, you know, Mozart was able to get a job, but it was as a relatively lowly assistant concertmaster. Now, he spent the next couple of years working at the court, composing all sorts of music across all sorts of genres. And I, I guess I should mention what I mean by that here, because genres back then, a little different to what we understand them today. Mozart wasn't going and writing, you know, hip hop and classic rock and then moving on to EDM and speed metal. No, 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 no. Instead, when we talk about genres in this period, we're talking about symphonies, concertos, quartets, operas, all the different types of music back then that are now sort of lumped into the classical category. They're all sort of fall under the same heading. In reality, they're their own distinct types of classical music, but we don't tend to think of them as being too different these days. You know, a lot of people these days will listen to a symphony and a concerto, and they won't be able to tell the difference between one or the other. Um, a concerto, for what it's worth, is where there is a a soloist at the front who is, so for example, a violin concerto will have a solo violinist at the front who is playing something accompanied by the orchestra, whereas a symphony is a piece that is designed just for an entire orchestra. And you've got other things like opera, people singing, got quartets, which is just four instruments, so on and so forth. Anyway, it's during this period when Mozart, you know, between the ages of, uh, of 17 and 21, while he's working in Salzburg between 1773 and 1777, during this period that some of his more iconic pieces were written. Um, a lot of Mozart's most famous work uh, we will hear next week, but some of the uh, he, he really is coming to into his own as a not just a composer, but as a legendary composer, as someone whose work will stand the test of time. And one of the more famous pieces of music that he wrote during this period in Salzburg is the famous Divertimento in D, K125A, known as the Salzburg Symphony Number no. One, and uh, it is a piece of music that you've probably heard before. And this and so many other pieces were written by Mozart during this four-year period, as I say, between 73 and 77, while he remained in Salzburg. Occasionally, he took smaller trips here and there to places like Vienna or Munich. But during this period, he left adolescence behind and he became a grown man in a, well, in a figurative sense, at least, if not quite a literal one. And what do I mean by this? Well, apparently Mozart... He was quite a small bloke, even by the standards of, uh, of the period back then. I mean, you might know that humans these days in 21st century are a lot bigger than we used to be. But Mozart was small even for the 18th century. He was very short. He's quite thin. He was a pale fella as well. Had a, had a high voice and he loved to dress richly and usually wore the, you know, the, the classic white powdered wig so closely associated with his period in history. Um, but as he grew from a teenager to a young adult, he continued to write music the entire time. This, this entire period, just, again, absurd, absurd amounts of music, over 100 pieces in the four years that he spent in Salzburg between 73 and 77. That means roughly he was writing a new piece of music once every two weeks. Imagine that. And for those of you who aren't too well acquainted with, um, with, with classical music, 
I, I want to point out that one piece of music generally involved what we would call today three tracks, right? Uh, typically speaking, and again, I know the music nerds are going to say, well, actually, there's not always, I know not always, but typically speaking, a piece of what we today call classical music involves three movements, right? So there'll be, uh, there'll be the first, second, and third movement. Usually it goes fast, slow, fast. And if you ever go to a musical performance of, a, of, a, you know, of something like a symphony, a concerto, whatever it is, a, a quartet, a sonata, that has this three-movement fast, slow, fast uh, rhythm, uh, it's, very, it's considered uh, improper to applaud between movements because they are considered one piece of music. You know, so when if you ever go to a grand concert hall, you put your glad rags on and you and you head down to a a, a fancy classical com- uh, concert. Don't embarrass yourself by clapping after the first movement because they're considered one piece of music. But I mean, if you look at it through that lens, by modern standards, you know, saying he wrote a hundred pieces of music, that's three hundred movements. If all of those pieces of music are sonatas, concertos, symphonies, quartets, whatever. So just an absurd amount of music. I really just can't stress how hard this guy worked. He lived and breathed music and composition and performance, and his output was staggering. However, he felt ultimately like a big fish in a small pond in Salzburg. And so despite this prolific output, despite a regular salary that was admittedly a little small, and despite his excellent reputation as a composer, Mozart wasn't happy to remain where he was in Salzburg. He wanted to leave his home city. He wanted to seek out new opportunities, particularly to write operas. In 1775, Salzburg's uh, court theatre closed, and so the city basically had never, never, never had any operas performed there. And so because of this, at the age of 21, in 1777, Mozart resigned his position at the Salzburg court, and he went off to seek his fortune, travelling once again, this time, however, without Leopold. Leopold was still in the employ of the Archbishop of Salzburg, who refused to give him permission to leave this time, and so instead, Mozart hit the road with his mum. He and Anna Maria left instead, they packed their bags, and they left Salzburg together in September 1777. They visited Augsburg and Mannheim, uh, the Mannheim Orchestra in particular, widely considered the best in Europe. Some very important connections to be made there for Mozart as a, as a young composer. Even today, the Mannheim, Mannheim Orchestra, Mannheim School, is, uh, is recognised as having had a, a huge influence on orchestral music and the classical symphony. Um, but there was something in Mannheim, something else, that Mozart perhaps found even more interesting and alluring than even the famous orchestra there, because it was in Mannheim that he fell in love. He became acquainted with a family called the Webers, right? And they were a musical family. And he was actually hired by them. He was hired by this family to give singing lessons to one of their daughters, Aloysia. Now, Aloysia was a very talented singer, and she only became more talented. You know, her her talents blossomed under the tutelage of Mozart, as he himself, you know, was... He was a decent singer, and he obviously knew a fair bloody bit about music. So, obviously, you know, her talents were going to be improved. But that wasn't the only thing that blossomed. These lessons, they went very well according to Mozart's letters, but they also caused Mozart to fall head over heels in love with his student. He wanted to marry her, but as a 21-year-old travelling musician without, I mean, again, without a lucrative court position, his prospects were not ideal for a young woman at the time. And because there were no further opportunities that were forthcoming in terms of employment in Mannheim, Mozart 
had to put money before love and he had to move on. He knew that there was no way that, you know, a family like the Vabers would accept him as a potential suitor for their daughter when he was in such dire straits financially. And so he had to leave his beloved Aloysio behind and seek his fortune elsewhere. So he and his mum moved on. They headed to Paris to, uh, where, again, they had connections from their from their former uh, their, their former time in the French capital years ago. And, uh, you know, Paris is still a flourishing cultural city, although, of course, we're not too far away from a very bloody revolution. But unfortunately, the trip to Paris was not a happy one at all. Mozart did have some successes, needless to say. He was still writing absurd, absurd amounts of music. But even with his composition being as prolific as, and as successful as ever, his job hunting was as unsuccessful as ever. And what's worse, he suffered a terrible, terrible loss in Paris. His financial situation wasn't great. Mozart ended up falling into debt while he was in Paris to the point that he had to sell personal valuables to make ends meet. And this was what made it all the worse when his mum fell ill. Due to a lack of funds, Mozart couldn't afford to bring a doctor in to treat her. And, of course, it only got worse from there because Anna Maria's health quickly failed and she died on the 3rd of July in 1778. And to this day, we're still, we still don't know for sure what she died of because, again, no doctor was able to be brought in and treat her properly before she, before she passed away. It was probably typhoid fever that cost her her life, but again, we're not certain. But Mozart, obvious, I mean, of course, was absolutely devastated and he didn't know what to do. Luckily for him, a bloke named Melchior Grimm that he'd met uh, on his grand tour as a child, who'd been actually helping him, acting almost as a manager for this young bloke on, uh, now that he'd, uh, he'd come back as a, as a young adult. Uh, Melchior Grimm had been helping Mozart make his way in Paris and allowed him to stay at his place uh, for the time being while he dealt with the loss of his mother. Um, obviously, this was a source of, of comfort and, and stability in a very, very trying time for Mozart. He's got no money. He's lost his mum. He cannot find uh, regular work. So having someone you know, well-connected and wealthy take him under his wing and give him a place to stay would have been very welcome. But it did, interestingly, lead to another little sort of um, encounter between Mozart and someone that we've talked about on the podcast before. One of Grimm's neighbours at this exact time, when, when Mozart was living with Grimm, was none other than our old friend Joseph Boulon, the Chevalier de Saint-Georges, another talented musician, episode 104, get across it, and it's very likely that Boulon and Mozart met. They lived, I mean, they were next door neighbours, the adjoined building had a shared garden. It's overwhelmingly probable that the two had some sort of an encounter, even if it isn't super well documented. Anyway. During the time that Mozart stayed with, with Grimm, he certainly put the time to good use, you know, even as he was going through grief and, and bereavement, whatever else, he still was, comp- I mean, he's obviously composing. Basically, if I, if I, unless I tell you he's not, right, throughout his entire life, he's always just always writing music. He's just always popping out new, new work, right? But he also premiered plenty of these new pieces that he'd written as he continued to look for a more permanent position. And one such piece was his famous Symphony Number no. 31, in D major, K300A, known, unsurprisingly, this one actually got a name, known as the Paris Symphony. Now, this piece of music was quite groundbreaking, really. Uh, It was written for a very large orchestra for the time, although, you know, quite a small orchestra by today's standards. 
It was written with parts not just for strings, obviously, but for flutes, oboes, bassoons, horns, trumpets, timpani, and the relative newcomer to orchestral music, the clarinet. Now, we'll talk about this a little bit more next week, but the clarinet's success as an orchestral instrument, a lot of it comes down to Mozart's fondness for the clarinet. He put it in a lot of his famous works, and this was one of them. Because of the size of the orchestra that was playing it, interestingly, some critics called the uh, the Paris Symphony noisy as a result. Imagine them in a modern gig, unbelievable. But the work has nonetheless stood the, stood the test of time as a standout piece, which is saying something, given Mozart's ridiculously large catalogue. And it is seen as a point at which, once again, Mozart's skills, his, 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 his mastery of composition went up another level. It shows us that he was still in the process of, of honing his craft and on his way to becoming the legendary composer that we all know of him, know, know him as today. Unfortunately, however, I mean, you know what I'm going to say, right? Mozart, he couldn't find a position. He just couldn't find a spot as a, at, a, as a, at, a, at a court anywhere that was going to suit him. He was offered a position as the, uh, as the organist at, uh, at Versailles, but that's not what he wanted to do. He wanted to write music, and after a while, unfortunately, he wore out his welcome with Melchior Grimm, and relations soured between him and his host. Mozart, I mean, on top of this, right, on top of the fact that he couldn't find work, on top of the fact that he wasn't getting on well with Grimm by this point, he also, and I mean, I don't blame him for this. He didn't like Paris at all. He called it dirty and smelly. He said it was unfit for his work as a musical genius. And he's absolutely bloody right. I mean, something's never changed. This very day, Paris is still dirty and smelly. It's good to see that some historical traditions endure through, endure through the centuries. But Mozart, it, it, it wasn't just Paris he didn't like. More broadly, he, didn't, he just didn't like the French. He didn't have much respect for the French on, on a broader level, it seems. Uh, in particular, the French language. He wrote in a letter, he described uh, French uh, like this. He said, <clears throat> the devil himself must have invented the language of these people. Uh, and when he was describing uh, French musicians, the musicians that he worked with in France, he wrote uh, that he was <clears throat> surrounded by nothing but beasts and animals. And he also went on to say that the whole of French music is not worth a sou, which was an old type of uh, French currency. So Mozart, not a fan of Paris, not a fan of the French, and particularly not a fan of French music. Sorry, Daft Punk, Mozart really did you dirty there. And because of all this, and I mean, and other reasons on top of that as well, I mean, the loss of his mother, the lack of employment, whatever else, Mozart ended up leaving Paris, still virtually penniless, right? And still feeling pretty ordinary about everything. And he returned to the Holy Roman Empire. He returned to Mannheim, but he found that Aloysia Weber wasn't there anymore. She'd moved to Munich. And when Mozart went to Munich, he found that Aloysia's career as a singer had taken off, and if she had had any interest in him before, she certainly did not now. She was essentially a pop star, right? Far too big time for someone like Mozart. Imagine, imagine that. Imagine someone being too big time for Mozart, mate. Anyway, with no prospects for employment or love, Mozart, with a very, very heavy heart, he returned to Salzburg, something that he would have preferred not to do at all, by all accounts, but he had very little choice. After hearing about the death of Anna Maria, Leopold had actually redoubled his efforts to find work for Mozart and, to his credit, had succeeded in lining up quite a reasonable position for his son. Mozart reluctantly returned his home to Salzburg in 1779, and there he took up his new position as the organist and concertmaster for the archbishopric, 
which at least earned him three times the amount that he'd earned as the assistant concertmaster previously. But still, he wasn't happy. Not with anything. His career, his location, even the kind of work that he was creating, the kind of work that he was doing. I, again, don't need to tell you, he was still composing, he was still writing music, of course he was, but he wanted to expand the breadth of his work. He wanted to increase its scale and its reach and gain an ever wider audience. But for now, at the age of 23, he's back in Salzburg, back in his home city where he was born, back to being a big fish in a small pond. But what was his next move? Where did he go and what did he do to develop his career further? Well, tune in next week when we hear of Mozart's adventures in Vienna, his association with Josef Haydn, his marriage, and best of all, I know you've been waiting for me to mention this, we will investigate his lifelong love of scatological humour. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is half the story of Mozart. I'm sorry to do it to you to break it across two episodes, but there was just so much stuff that I wanted to cover. And already you can see this episode's quite a long one. So I want to I want to do the story uh, full justice. And next week, so much stuff to look forward to. So do tune in then. Anyway, that is that for this week. All the normal boring housekeeping stuff coming your way, of course, starting with the merch. Um, if you go to bit.ly slash H-A-H merch, you can also follow the link uh, at halfhousehistory.net. If you want to follow the link there, you can go to the merch shop and you buy stuff. Um, all sorts of stuff on sale at the moment there. You can get T-shirts, mugs, um, pillows if you want. If you want a pillow with Herodotus on it, that is available there to purchase. Um, Laptop covers, uh, phone cases, all sorts of nonsense there with all sorts of different... uh, uh, designs on it, blood and guts and horrible murder, it all, and they got worse from there. I, I mean, go and have a look at least, if uh, if nothing else, and if there's anything that's, that that uh, that you spot that you like, well, snag it for yourselves, no worries. But apart from that, halfhousehistory.net contact form there if you want to get in touch with a an episode suggestion, and of course, all of the old episodes can be found at anchor.fm slash half history. Uh, thank you to Anchor for hosting the podcast. Thank you to T Public for hosting the merch, and thank you to you for listening. And thank you most of all to the Patreons, patreon.com slash history if you want to get across that and uh, support the show. Uh, a great way to gain access to, well, I say a great way, the only way to gain access to behind-the-scenes stuff, uncut episodes, early access as well, show notes, all that sort of thing. So uh, get across that if you're interested. But that is that. I'll see you back next week for more stuff on Mozart. Looking forward to your company then. Leaving you, of course, with a question posed on Reddit. This one comes to us from Redditor Good Ghibli Wibbly, who asks, If Mozart has been decomposing for so long, why can we still find his music?